0: This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name is Owen. I'm one of the lead pastors here. It's great to meet you and welcome to the church if you're here for the first time. We're so glad. As you can see, you're welcome to just come to this every Sunday, but there's so much more going on in the life of the church as well that you can partake in. If you're at home, welcome. So great to have you with us. Um, Now, um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll have heard me talk about Christ not being Jesus' surname. Actually, it's a title. It's a title that we give him. So Jesus Christ, it's not his surname, it's a title we give him. And it means anointed one. And it was applied to his life retrospectively. Uh, so uh, Peter, uh, John, and Paul, two, three rather, are the most important apostles um, in, the, in the history of the church. Um, actually, they apply it to him retrospectively. I'm just going to remind you what those uh, quotes are from the Bible. So in Acts 2.36... Peter says, uh, so all the people of Israel should know this truly, God has made Jesus, the man you nailed to the cross, both Lord and Christ. And then in Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul says this, the Son, that is Jesus Christ, is the image, just, just listen to these words, Like he's describing a human being here. The Son, Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him everything, or all things, holds together. Now those words might be very familiar to you, but just remember that Paul is talking about the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died and was resurrected. And then John. John writes his account, is eponymous account, and also uh, the letter to the Re- uh, that we call Revelation. He says this in John 1, 1-3, talking of Jesus again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Isn't that a stunning statement of who Jesus Christ is? Absolutely stunning. And what's most significant is, is that these three most influential people in the history of the Christian church are making this point. This is not some esoteric uh, author. This is not someone left of field. These are the guys who formed the church in Christ's name. So we've got to take his words very seriously. And this got me thinking, um, if Christ Jesus is in all things and holds all things together, then wherever we look, can we see Christ? Wherever we look, wherever we can sense something, are we seeing something of Christ holding that together? And what I wanted to do uh, was actually hear some people talk about their stories of how they've encountered Christ in their life. And we're going to be hearing from at least two people this term about this. And the first one, our first guest today, is Sam Sayer. Would you give her a big warm welcome? Now, Sam and I are birthday twins. We are. And um, uh, I am the older one, you can tell that just by the way we look. Isn't that right, Sam?
1: That's not true.
0: <laughs> um, but uh, we are birthday twins, and we've known each other for a long time, actually, haven't we? Probably around about, about seven years, is
1: it? No, nine. Nine years? Nine maybe? years, isn't that crazy? Yeah.
0: It's gone quick, hasn't it? We were in our early 40s when we started talking to each oh, other. Oh,
1: thanks, though. We <laughs> <the> cover. <laughs> 30s people, 30s.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to share with us today. That's and quite all right. um you know you've got such a wonderful story and also you, you speak the story of other people as well. So but let's 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 kind of first of all just hear a bit about your story, about what's life been like for you? When where did it all start?
1: My mother, I think it started with. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I was born in Norwich, um, home of Olivia Coleman. Um, and, yeah, to a fairly normal family, I would say. I have two brothers. Um, and our Christian family, so we were dragged along to Methodist Church in Norwich, and um, I was very aware of Jesus. Um, he was everywhere, No, you know. Um, I would say I was quite a good daughter at that point, quite a good child. Um, at age seven, um, I was taken to a... Uh, Christian camp in the middle of nowhere, and um, I would say then I had an experience of Jesus, um, age seven. And I always knew He was my friend, um, I knew that He was with me. I was a sli- I think I was slightly strange as a child. I used to spend a lot of time with animals and um, would just sort of pray for animals and things like that. I don't know if that's weird. No.
0: Doesn't sound weird. It sounds no, perfectly <laughs> innocent and childlike. It sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, kind of that was me, age seven. And then I think for me, um, something I would describe as a formative experience was um, going off to another Christian holiday. We didn't have holidays that weren't Christians, really. My mum and dad used to take us to church on a Sunday, even if we were on holiday. Is that normal? I don't know. Anyway.
0: How was that for you? How did it make you feel?
1: Really annoying. <laughs> You I want to, go to be instead? on the beach. All oh, right, <laughs> um, But they would do that. So, yeah, it, I was at Spring Harvest, which is a quite well-known Christian holiday. Um, and I I was in a, in a... So I was about 10, I think, at this point, And I was in this ballroom, which oh, is always thrilling to be in a ballroom. Um, and there was a song being sung by the band on stage. And it was a song that's, that's, that was directly from Proverbs 31 and it said, I will speak out for those who have no voices. It's quite an old song, so you guys might not know it. But, um, And there was something in that moment that kind of made me think, oh, I think this is a job for me. I think I need to be doing this. Um, and I just wanted to just read Proverbs uh, two verses from Proverbs 31. This was the, the bit that the song was based on, if I can get my phone to um, behave. These are the words, it's, um, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And what's kind of amazing is that that, those two verses have been like a banner over my life. Um, and I'll explain a bit more about those in a minute, but um, I think it was just in that moment that I just thought, yeah, I think that's what I need to do.
0: Wow, how old were you?
1: I think I was about 10.
0: Wow, that's quite an awareness for a 10-year-old, isn't it?
1: I told you I was weird. That's
0: incredible, no, it really (laughs) is. And your experience of Jesus at that time, what was was he saying to you, what sort of...? What was, how would you characterise your relationship with Jesus?
1: I think it was the friendship thing, you know. I think... I just felt safe with Jesus. I I, I talked to him. Um, I used to also, used to pretend around this time that I was in... Amy Grant music videos. So...
0: So just tell us who Amy Grant was.
1: So Amy Grant is an American singer-songwriter who now is in her, I'm guessing, late 60s probably. But at the time, um, I used to borrow our neighbours' dogs and take them for walks um, in this big heathland near our home in Suffolk, which is where we lived then. And... (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's really sad but I just used to pretend that I was in her music video singing the song through these big grassland kind of heath meadows with these two dogs and imagine you know hope, hope that no one would see me from school but um yeah so that's what I used to do so I think I just I, I think one of the amazing things as well is that from age 13 on I was part of a really good church youth group that was part of a brethren church in my town. And one of the most exciting things things for me was that there there were boys in this youth group. And at the church that I grew up in, there were just my brothers. So obviously that was a kind of motivating factor. Um, But it was brilliant, we used to all go away together. It was, I mean, it was a brethren church, so it was quite male dominated, which latterly I've discovered is not really my bag. Um, but, you know, it was, it was amazing. The Bible teaching, all of that was really, really good.
0: Do you look back now on your time as a child and your relationship with Jesus then with fondness and like, is is it, is it just sentiment or is it, was it more than that? Do you, do you long for that kind of simplicity of relationship that you had then?
1: I think I still have that now, Owen. Great. You know, I think... I think I've always had a kind of childlike faith, actually. And I think I see things quite simplistically. And you'll sort of realise maybe why that has had to be as I continue to let you into my life. But, you know, it's just, yeah, it's... It is like that. I am still 10-year-old Sam, 7-year-old Sam, putting her hand into the hand of Jesus every day. That's kind of how it is.
0: That's really profound. Now, tell me about um, your burgeoning passion for people who can't speak up for themselves, like that Proverbs 31 talks about. How did you first come into contact with people that were refugees and asylum seekers?
1: Well, I spent my 20s in London, and I was part of a big, big church, and um, one of my friends there decided it would be a really good idea to drive a converted ambulance to the Croatian coast um, to build a children's playground at a peace centre on, on this coast. And this was around the time when the former Yugoslavia was in crisis. Um, and children, there were, you know, in the way that we've seen Ukraine in the early days of the Ukraine conflict, um, we were seeing on our TV sets kids and young people, all sorts, being displaced in Bosnia. And so, This peace center was set up by some Americans to be a place for kids from Mostar in Bosnia to come and learn how to be children again. So we basically made, I'm rubbish at this by the way, we made these like animal shapes and things um, to make this children's playground. And what was kind of, disconcerting was these kids would arrive, and within five minutes they'd be playing war games around these children playground, and we were like, no, 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 look at the animals. (laughs) But they were, of course, kids, and kids do run around shooting each other, and sadly, some of these children may have seen that. So it was there that um, I met children coming out of um, Mostar, but also we went up, one Easter Sunday, we went up to a refugee camp in the hills in Croatia, and that was where I first met refugees who were living in like these sort of breeze block, they were like garages, breeze block garages. And we divided up as a team, and I was a bit passive aggressive because we had to take in chocolate eggs, and I was like, We don't need chocolate eggs. They need new lives, you know, <laughs> being very idealistic. Um, they were delighted by the chocolate eggs, by the way. Um, But we were divided up and went in to meet with some of the families who couldn't speak a scrap of English. Um, I couldn't speak Serbo-Croat. But there was something about the experience of sitting with a family um, who had made cake. I've no idea why, because I don't think they even had much power. But they made this very pink cake. And we were able to sit with them and eat this cake. And there was something about it, you know, it was... Just a moment of humanity and solidarity. And I started to think to myself, I know that there are people coming to the UK to claim asylum. So I would have been... This was my early 20s, OK? And um, there was it just started to kind of fan into flame, I suppose, my passion for refugees and asylum seekers.
0: So that then became a vocation for you, didn't it? Mm. How did that happen?
1: Well it happened by volunteering. So I arrived in Bristol in 2000 and um, I'd been working for a film and TV company in London and had been made redundant and had come to Bristol and started volunteering for a charity called Refugee Action and so I essentially became an advice worker. So we were giving people who were coming through our doors advice about how to claim asylum, um, getting their kids into schools, getting medical help, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I then ended up getting a job with them and I did that for 10 years, which is a long time. Um, and it was the most amazing grounding for what came next because I met so many people from all over the world and I'm not really very well traveled, but I used to say, Oh, it's all right. They come to me. (laughs) Um, I don't have to go through customs. Um, and I think for me, I, I've, I love being around people. I love being around people from different places and just finding out about people's culture and who they are. And so for me, that was an amazing education for the next adventure.
0: And that next adventure was actually, took quite a lot of courage. How much much of a step was it for you? And how much did your sense of calling from Christ influence that?
1: I think... Tell
0: us what the step was for it. Okay,
1: so I left my job. I took volunteer redundancy. And I started a befriending service for asylum seekers and refugees. And I think I just kind of knew that it was something I had to do. I was 40. It was my 40th year. And... I just felt like, if I don't do it now, when am I gonna do it? And I'd spoken to the other agencies in Bristol who were working in the community with asylum seekers and refugees. And at that point of time in London, there wasn't any, sorry, Bristol, there wasn't a befriending service for this community. So I was like, okay, well, I think we might need one. Asked other people what they thought, and they said, yeah, no, that would be good. Um, and managed to fundraise. And I had no experience of fundraising. But I managed to raise, and this is incredible really, I don't know quite how it happened. Miraculous, maybe. Um, I managed to fundraise 19,000 pounds before I started the project, which took me through my first year and beyond. And 1,000 pounds was a banker's draft through our letterbox. I've no idea to this day who that was. And I'm like, I can't spend it on shoes, can I? What am I gonna do? <laughs> but it was, it was literally like, I don't know who this is. And there was a note with it that just said, this is for your new project. You know, so, I mean, that was incredible. And I think I took that as a kind of green light. Yeah, I'm on the right path here. This is meant to be a thing. But it was a bit lonely, I think, initially.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of your energy for this, how, how, do you, how much do you think your encounters with Christ when you were younger fuel? And your sense of, you know, the, your worldview is shaped by Christ, isn't it? Mm. You, you know, your... You, the way you see the world is shaped by your v- vision of the resurrected Christ. Your personal relationship with Jesus is fuel for the fire. Mm. Do, do you think you'd have ended up doing this without those encounters with Christ? Or was this, is, is this who you are?
1: I think it is who I am. But there are some really fantastic people who don't profess a faith in Jesus who are doing some amazing things. But I think...
0: But personally, do, do you feel like that's something that you're... <sighs>
1: Well, I don't know, because I feel like God's always been there. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not like I had a massive conversion experience and kind of went, I must do something worthy or, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, I think I just, I mean, you know, let's face it, it, it. I have a very supportive husband. Bless him. So, you know, it, it's its its not like I'm in a vacuum doing these things. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you set up a friend um, and then... Just recently, you... Uh, obviously By befriend, the way, just to
1: say, Befriend became uh, part of Bridges for Communities. Yeah. So I met Dan, and he agreed for Bridges to adopt me three years in. I then worked with Dan and Bridges for seven years until last autumn. So it would be, it would be wrong not to mention Absolutely. Befriend, the Dan Green and, and Befriend and Bridges. Yeah, and Befriend is, and still, yeah, and and befriend is still going, yes, yeah. which is fantastic.
0: And then you moved into something else. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so I don't know whether I have a 10-year itch thing going on. I'm um, slightly worried for my 70th year, 60th year, <laughs> <laughs> the next one. It's the a 60th long way year. Off. Oh my goodness! But yeah, um, I have always loved radio and talk radio specifically, and so I um, I started volunteering with community radio in Bristol about six years ago, and um, learned how to use all the stuff and produced and presented the arts and culture show on a Saturday morning for a while, and now I'm on the breakfast show on a Tuesday morning. And, um, and then I started podcasting. So I created a podcast during lockdown and um, have been doing bits of reporting for BCFM and bits of audio inventions and things. Um, and I did a commission that, none of the photos have been up. I just said, oh, they have been up. Um, and then, um, sorry, Ben. And then I, um, yeah, I did a commission, which is the latest thing that I did, um, which was about refugees, of course.
0: Yeah, and tell us about. Just, we're going to hear from just a couple of voices yeah. from those um, from that that podcast that you just tell us who they are.
1: Okay, so um, the idea of the comm- of the piece was I wanted to look at who has been coming to Bristol to. Um, claim asylum or to seek sanctuary over the past 50 years. So I started with someone who came as a uh, child from Uganda in the 1970s and then brought it right up to date to the present day with two Ukrainian young women. So there were five contributors along the way. Um, and the ones that we're going to hear are um, Deanna and Jenny from Ukraine, who've been here about about a year probably now, actually, almost a year. And then also we're going to hear from Adina and Saravash, Vash, who are from Iran, who have been in Bristol about two and a half years, I think, now.
0: That's probably tea.
1: You are the newest of the new refugees who've arrived in Bristol. How many days has it been since you arrived? Um, three weeks. Yesterday was a month for me here. What were your first impressions of Bristol on arrival?
2: Lovely city. I think that Bristol reminds me a lot about my city. I loved it. The culture, the music, the arts, everything.
1: Who did you meet in the early days? Our hosts.
2: They're nice people. We have different hosts, so we live with different families. They were the first people who showed us the culture, the suspension bridge. (laughs) Yeah, we will be thankful probably forever for everything. (laughs) How are you finding the food? What me and Diana, we noticed that people here eat bread a lot. It's Sorry. quite ironic, I think, that we produce a lot of wheat and uh, we produce a lot of bread. But probably as a country <laughs> produces a lot of bread. We do not eat that much as young girls. <laughs> yes.
1: This is a big question, but what do you miss about home?
2: Everything. <laughs> Everything. Our friend, our family, my kids. <laughs> I miss my brother a lot and I miss my turtle. I had a little turtle. My I miss my grandpa. He was my friend as well.
1: Do you feel like you are getting established here now, or does it still feel quite new? Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, it, it's, it gets better.
2: Every day you get better. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely hard, but we have the support of the family that we live with. We can explore the city together. What is really hard to get used to is I wake up in the morning and... I'm like, okay, everything is okay, and then I hear English language all around. And it's it's hard to get used to. It's especially hard for me because I don't understand English so good. Bristol's very welcoming. Nothing but kindness and generosity here. Bristol may as well be our home. Thank you for welcoming us. Yeah. Thank you for making us feel as comfortable as possible.
1: How long have you been here in Bristol? In Bristol, uh, three years and four months. Adina, when you arrived, what were your first impressions? I arrived 21st of February 2019
0: and uh, I arrived to Easton to a share
1: house, which was very old and dirty and I was nervous. How long was it before you managed to make contact with your husband? Nine, Nine months, I think. What did you make of the, the weather? Actually, the wind annoyed me and yeah, we cannot
0: recognise how the weather is today. Maybe in the morning
1: it's <laughs> sunny and in the afternoon it's <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> what did you miss about
2: home? Uh, I miss for everything um, uh, about my city, my family, my culture.
1: Yeah, yeah, I miss my family, my mother, my father.
2: I'm uh, not sad because uh, I find new family here.
1: Who are your new family here?
2: Uh, I arrived to Bristol. I thought people are not friendly here. I find kind people here and they support us, same as uh, my family. It was amazing for me.
1: Where do you think of as home now you've got your little boy here who's almost one uh, to be honest that I feel home here
0: but not same as Iran every time I miss Iran I, uh, I'm looking forward to back Iran
2: this country is uh, same as father for me, but uh, Iran uh, uh, is mother those are really moving stories
0: and mm. you, you've talked to me before about seeing Jesus in people. Mm. Tell us some stories of how you've seen Jesus in people. I imagine you've seen Jesus in those people, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you see Jesus in people who are displaced and desperate sometimes, and you know, just when the when the rabbit meets the road, you know, they know that they need help. Um, Oh, I mean, and also, I also work at the Bristol Old Vic as I have a part-time job there um, in the box office and I see Jesus in the people I work with as well. So it's not just, you know, people who aren't, inverted commas, needy. Um, But I have had some experience of spending time with people, which is my most favourite thing to do, is to go to a cafe with somebody and just spend time. And one of those was with a uh, young woman, youngish woman, I think she was maybe late 20s, who was from Indonesia and she was trans and she had an amazing Christian faith and she had had her gender reassignment and all that back home um, and had faced massive persecution and had had to flee and it was like it was like two girls together sharing Jesus and it's not that we particularly talked about him or I remember sharing with her a bit about you know yeah when life's really tough you know we can pray and we can talk to him Um, but there was something quite profound in that moment of someone who has been through immense suffering and difficulty and was a long way from home and, and her family and may even have been rejected by her family and there was something about being with her that made me think, yeah, I, you know, I, it was like Jesus was with us, you know, like where two or three are gathered, there he is, you know, and it felt like that. Um, and then another one, um, and this is where um, I spent time with this with this woman and this family, but I then was able to give this person a volunteer, and this was an Indian family um, who, um, this was a real Romeo and Juliet story, so this was one of those scenarios where um, they had, she had married somebody below her caste. And they had fled to the UK and had a baby here and were living in this dark, dank basement flat in St. George. And she had agoraphobia, couldn't leave the house and was deeply, deeply depressed. And I was able to, um, when I was managing a friend, give her a wonderful volunteer. And the volunteer sent me a photo um, about five, six months into their partnership of this woman with her baby at the seaside. And I was like, that is the kingdom of God, you know? This volunteer, who actually is someone who's a Christian as well, had had been able to encourage and get that family to the seaside to, you know, and send me a photo of this little girl with an ice cream. And I was just like, that's why I do it, you know? That is freedom. She she helped this woman to get some freedom back. And that family got refugee status and are now settled somewhere. Um, yeah, amazing. amazing. What a privilege.
0: Absolutely. Now, you're talking there about meeting people and seeing Jesus in people's lives um, in their times of suffering, mm. in their suffering, but you've also experienced suffering yourself, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about that. What's the missing narrative?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is the big reveal. Um, <laughs> so... Um, I have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, Um, and amazingly, I looked up a statistic here, over a million people in the UK are um, reckoned to have it, and that is 30%, roughly 30% more than people who have dementia. So we hear quite a lot about dementia, don't we? But we don't hear very much about bipolar, Um, and the amount of resources that go towards dementia is so much more than people who have bipolar disorder so for me um it started um i started suffering from depression in my late teens had insomnia really struggled um flunked my a levels it would be fair to say went off to university and halfway through got halfway through my course and had what i now realize was a breakdown um, couldn't leave my bed, couldn't cook, couldn't really leave the house, um, thankfully I was part of an amazing church in London where, well, it was sort of amazing, I think at that time churches weren't very good with mental health issues, I think they're much better now, I think there's more knowledge now and awareness, back then I did feel like it was a bit of a freak, I have to say, um, which was an awful place to be in, um, but... I had people looking out for me, I had some key individuals who basically at different points I think probably saved my life. Um, So I had experienced uh, depression, very deep depression. My 20s I sort of think of as um, a lost decade in a way because it was pretty rubbish most of the time. Um, I had a broken heart, I'd had a failed relationship, Um, I'd had to drop out of university because I obviously couldn't get there, I was too depressed. Um and so that was my early twenties and then I had my first experience of mania, which initially feels fantastic. You feel like you are the most attractive, the most funny, effervescent person on the planet. But there's a point at which a line is crossed and actually it becomes quite scary. Um and people around you start going, Whoa, oh, why did they say that and what they're doing now? And you kind of get a bit of a reputation, which is horrible, because, you know, you can't help it, but you do, you know, I I did some fairly wacky things, I suppose, Um, but I didn't know what was going on, and it did coincide, for those of you that are aware of the Toronto blessing, it coincided with that, which had some fairly wacky um, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, I guess, and um, yeah, not helpful. For someone who already, you know, of her own will, can be quite away with the fairies. So that wasn't great. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, but I didn't have a diagnosis until I came to Bristol.
0: And, and that's, <clears throat> that's a pretty scary period of your life to go through, isn't it? Mm. How was how your faith, or how was your relationship with Jesus through that time?
1: Mm. Um, a bit confusing, I would say, at points, because... One of the other things that, happened, that has happened to me when I've had a manic episode is I, I feel very close to Jesus. And I feel like God is talking to me the whole time and giving me prophetic words for all sorts of people. And, and actually, it, that's not always a safe place to be. Um, and who knows whether it's God or not? I wouldn't say that it isn't always but I would also say that some of the time it really isn't, um, and it's being unwell. But, um, yeah. So I think, but in other times, so in the depression, and there will be people in this room who know what it's like to feel depressed. Um, you know, I I spend, I think probably, the majority of my twenties crying in church. You know, um, and, there were times when the darkness was so horrific that I was living moment to moment, particularly in my early experiences of it. Um, But I know, hand on heart, that God was with me. So even though I wasn't feeling anything, I was numb, I couldn't feel anything, I was, you know, in the darkness. Um, God was with me. And And it's almost like retrospectively, when you come out of the darkness, you can go... Oh yeah! Now I can see that God was with me, and He sent that person to tell me that they loved me, or I listened to a beautiful piece of music, or you know, I stroked somebody's dog, or you know, that kind of thing. It was like little things that that lifted me out. But when I was in it, you know, it, it wasn't great, and there were times when I couldn't be in church because it was too painful. Um, and I couldn't sing the songs, couldn't sing the victorious songs, no thank you, you know, it was like, actually, where are the, where are the laments, and I think as a church, we're not great at lamenting, and I think it's totally okay to lament, and say, you know, like Psalm 40, you know, how long have we got to sing this song for, God, you know, where are you, you know, I think, I think we need to do a bit more of that sometimes. You look at the world, it's in a mess, you know? I think we can say, God, help us, you know? And how long have we got to keep on trying to put the goodness out there? Um, sorry, that's a long answer.
0: No, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great answer because it's not an answer we hear. Someone articulating very much. And mm. when we struggle with our mental health, which t- from time to time many of us do, mm. um, actually trying to make sense of that in the light of a sort of, as you say, a kind of victorious kind of overcoming uh, Christian gospel. That can be difficult to handle, especially if you're not feeling that. But you talk there about Jesus being with you in the midst of the pain. You didn't feel like at the time you look back on it Mm -hmm. and you can see that Jesus was with you in the midst
1: of it. Can we just put the heart up? And I'll just explain what that is. So um, I'm not an artist, but I do like dabbling with paint sometimes. Um, So I made that... Um, after a depressed episode, I think, um, and I just felt like there's, there's a charity called Kintsugi Hope that kind of that I I heard about, and I realized I discovered what Kintsugi was, and it's a Japanese way of mending broken pottery. Okay, and what it does is it makes the brokenness and the repair part of the history of the item that's been broken, and they um, paint gold into the cracks. And so I did that as a kind of representation of all the colours in my life, which at times can be a little bit too bright, and at other times can be dark and horrible and sludgy. And I, so I did that to kind of encapsulate what bipolar is. It's from my bipolar kintsugi heart. It's yeah. amazing.
0: It is amazing. And you talk about it being in the past, but it's not just in the past, is it? It's very no. much the present.
1: No. Yeah.
0: What advice... Would you give someone that's in the midst of suffering,
1: mm.
0: and and you know wants to connect with Jesus but isn't connecting with Jesus because they're in the midst of suffering, like you, you know, you were saying yeah. in the dark times, it doesn't feel like Jesus is there. Yeah. Any advice for that?
1: I think I would say, um, hang on in there. I think you would say that Jesus is closer than a brother, and 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 that you just it will get better, things do change. And I think in the moment when um, it feels so difficult, and I'm talking here about the depression, when it's so, so difficult and you just cannot imagine that you are going to smile again or feel hope again, I think I would say you have to almost go, okay, I know that I can't feel this, but I know it's true. Um, There's a bit at the end of, I think, is it Habakkuk? that says, though there is no fruit on the vine, I will still praise you, you know? And it's like, I mean, I'm not, sometimes you can't do that, and I think that's okay. There's this sort of idea of bringing a sacrifice of praise. I think at times you just have to go, I don't have it in me, and I think that's completely fine. You don't have to force yourself to worship God. And I used to try, on my knees, sing worship songs. Don't bother, you know? You just, it's like... <sighs> It's Jesus hears, God hears kind of the internal, oh, just groans, you know, when we are in that place, just reaching out to him and hanging on in there and telling other people what you're going through. Do not stay silent. Do not feel like you've got to just keep, you know, pretend that everything's okay. The last thing the world needs is a church that pretends it's sorted. They don't need that. Because they're not sorted. And so if we can be honest about our failings and our what we're going through, our weaknesses, then they go, Oh, well, we're like that too. You know, it encourages that openness and that vulnerability. And my life is it's flipping hard sometimes, you know, it's really tough. And you know, I mean Rich would tell you, you know, it's it's hard. And I go up and I go down. You know, in the past few months, I've had a bit of an up and I've had a bit of a down. And it's not dreadful because I'm on medication, okay? But if I wasn't on that medication, I actually genuinely don't know if I'd still be alive. I might have unalived myself, you know, because thank God for all the resources that we have to keep us well. But sometimes it takes a blooming long time to get well. And... Being patient is really tough, but we have to hang on in there.
0: Mm, I agree. And vulnerability is something that we, um, we talk a lot about. Um, uh, that there is a reward to being vulnerable, isn't there? Uh, I don't know if, if you would describe it like this, but when we do share openly and honestly with one another, we feel more connected oh. with other people. I know for me, experiencing um, sharing vulnerability about my own self and my own stuff that I've not told anyone before, creating an incredible connection and bond with people that was so fulfilling. Yeah. It was so satisfying and almost therapeutic in that sense. Um, I know that we talk about the church as a, a community, but obviously we're part of families, we're part of wider communities. Um, being vulnerable in that in those contexts, you know, you, it, it takes a lot of courage and any advice on that about sharing stuff about, you know, for you about being Bipolar, sharing this in, you know, in a, in different contexts. Any advice on that?
1: Yeah, I'd say choose the people you tell. Um, I am quite an oversharer. <laughs> in in most aspects of my life, I always have been. It's kind of who I am, and I kind of don't care in a way. But I would say um, choose people you trust. Um, yeah, you, you don't need people gaslighting you or any of that, you know. I think, and within a church scenario, there will be people who y- you can't always trust, maybe. So you need to build those relationships of trust. Um, but I would say there is such a... Well, as you were saying, Owen, there's 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 something really beautiful about being who you are with people, you know. And just, this is who I am, you know, and... If people are worth their salt, they'll love you anyway. And they will learn from you. And it's just about... It's like we're a jigsaw puzzle, you know? We all need those pieces. And sometimes, you know, we, we we need to look for the missing piece, you know? We need to look for the person on the edge. And I'm someone who I think will always be slightly on the edge of things, looking out for other people who are slightly on the edge of things. That's kind of another thing about my calling, I suppose. Um, and there's, a, there's an amazing Irish proverb which says, um, in the shelter of each other, the people live. And there we go. And, um, you know, we should be able to be each other's shelter. And that under that shelter, we should be able to be exactly who we are. We should be able to laugh, cry, all those things, you know, and thrive as people. And I think when the world sees that, sees the church being that, they are attracted to it because they think, actually, I want to be part of that. I need that in my life.
0: That's so true. That's so true. Could we just show Sam our appreciation for sharing with us this morning? It's not easy to uh, share in a public context anyway, it's even harder when you're sharing stuff that is painful, and uh, we're just so grateful to you for opening that up to us, because it will help so many other people open up their own hearts as well, and if you are in a similar position where there's stuff going on in your life, where you're like, I've never told anyone that, it's so brave of Sam to share that in that context, hopefully her bravery will encourage you to share what's going on in your life with with a trusted friend or family member, so that you you don't just go through this by yourself, because That's no way to live, and it's certainly not the way Christ Jesus wanted us to live. So, um, yeah, please, please do find a trusted friend and share that. If you would like to share that with one of the team, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, Do find us afterwards.